Tonight on Hops and Box Office Flops, we ask you to believe, to believe that a man can indeed fly. So look, up in the sky, it's a bird, it's a plane, it's Superman Returns. Hops and Box Office Flops. A place where we can celebrate the underdog films, the bombs, the disasters, the much maligned movies that have drowned in their infamy. So please sit back, grab a beer, and enjoy the show. Hello and welcome back to Hops and Box Office Flops. This is presented by RevengeOfTheFans.com. Tonight is our 28th official episode. I am joined by both Captain Cash. Hey everybody. And Chumpzilla. Howdy, howdy, howdy. What are we drinking tonight, Captain Cash? So tonight we are drinking Stone Brewings Enjoy by July 4th, 2019 Unfiltered IPA. Because just like this movie, it's all about the red, white, and blue, the American way, and still just a little too late. Cheers, everybody. Okay, so this episode's an exciting one for me. Last week, we covered our top ten Marvel Cinematic Universe movies. You guys geeked out a lot, so much, in fact, that there's some things that had to hit the editing floor, unfortunately, but they may make their way back in a lost episode one day. And I... I'm excited because this is my wheelhouse now. This is Superman. He's my favorite character. I'm the DC guy of the trio. So when two people recommended it, not just one person recommended this movie too, I hopped at the chance to do it because pretty much I would watch this movie anyway, so what does it matter? Uh, But before we take flight, I'm going to give you a brief background on why exactly uh, a film about one of my all-time favorite characters earned the dubious honor of being labeled a flop. So... This movie flew into theaters in 2006. It was directed by Brian Singer, who, full disclosure for the purposes of this pod, will just acknowledge here and now he should be in prison and leave it at that. He's a goddamn monster. Yep. Originally budgeted at $185 million. The final production cost came in at $223. Uh, if you factor in tax rebates, still over $200. Probably $100 million worth of marketing costs. But there was also another like 60 or so million dollars worth of costs that had gone to Superman Lives, which we're going to talk about in just a moment. So really, since the movie made under 400 million, it barely turned a profit prior to DVDs and Blu-rays and streaming or whatever, but not a great showing for one of the biggest superheroes of all time. Uh, This movie was Superman's return to theaters after a 19-year layoff. He'd been gone since 1987's Superman for the Quest for Peace. Decently reviewed, 75% on Rotten Tomatoes. Actually has a higher meta score than Batman Begins, 72 to 70. But the fans, especially over time, have really sort of been unenthusiastic about it. A uh, little callback here. Michael Doherty, writer-director of Godzilla King of the Monsters, has a writing credit on this film. Stars of this movie, Brandon the Adam Routh. Creepy Kevin Spacey, Kate Blue Crush Bosworth, Frank Langella, Parker Posey, James Marsden, equally wasted here as he was in X-Men, and Cal, I'm painfully short of a crazy case pen, who, why you cast him, I don't know, because he has zero lines in the entire movie. Zero. Very noticeable. 
too. A lot of, it's a lot of FaceTime with no dialogue. It's just odd. I can't help but feel that this was before Cal Penn truly blew up. I think we had gotten one Harold and Kumar only. We had not gotten Carol, Harold and Kumar uh, escape from Gitmo. So I feel like mm, maybe he's okay as a bit player. I don't really have a, a, a judgment on his level of stardom. I think it's just a really strange choice to, to have that much screen time for one of the henchmen when he's a mute. Oh, I, I think it's just strange, regardless of uh, Penn's status as, as a you know a star or, or a film actor at the time, whatever. And White a, House correspondent. Yep, correct. Uh, he gets a lot of screen time doing things with no dialogue. I mean, it's noticeable. Like you keep expecting that guy to say something the second, the third, the fourth time. You get like you know thirty seconds of screen time with him, and he's just mute the whole time. Also, like to give a shout out. To Sam Huntington as Jimmy Olsen. Sam Huntington, great character actor. Don't see him enough. And we will talk about him later as well. From what I understand, Cal Penn was actually supposed to have a larger role, and it was cut out. He was supposed to have worked for the Daily Planet and planted the story about Krypton, remnants of Krypton being found to lure Superman away so Lex could get out of jail. That's actually in the video game version of Superman Returns, which I never played. Huh. That that actually would have made way more sense and been a lot more interesting. The whole thing is like I understand like Lex is he's supposed to be grandiose. He's supposed to be uh, I'm the smartest guy in the room, and that works to a degree here. But he literally every one of the henchmen says nothing almost at all in the entire movie. And Parker Posey is not. We'll talk about this later too. But I mean, she's essentially Miss Tessmacher, but not as cool. So. It, I literally had to look up the cast list to realize she's not Miss Tessmacher. Yeah. I was fully prepared on this pod to talk about her as Miss Tessmacher. Okay, so the description for this movie I took from Voodoo. Uh, really, it's not available to stream for free anywhere from what I found. I obviously own it, so it wasn't a problem for me. But Voodoo, in a soaring new chapter in the epic story of the Man of Steel, Superman returns, title drop, to fight for truth and justice. While old enemy Lex Luthor, Kevin Spacey, plots to render him powerless. Superman must face the heartbreaking realization that Lois Lane has moved on with her life, or has she? From the depths of the ocean to the far reaches of outer space, Superman blazes an epic journey of redemption to protect the world he loves from cataclysmic destruction. How would you two describe this film in one sentence? I would call this movie uh, Superman 3... The quest for more peace. Because it's effectively, it is a sequel to Superman 2. It's an extension of the Donner uh, universe. And it's uh, it's a very peaceful movie to the point that it's excruciatingly boring. Uh, I am actually with you on that. I would have described it as, it's actually just Superman 1 without the whimsy and fun replaced with sullenness. And I like this movie, but it is a pretty dour film. And I will say, to Brian Singer's credit, it is an accurate extension of the uh, Donner universe. It's definitely on tone for those movies. I just don't think that works in the more modern context. Which is one of my first questions. But, Captain Cash, how would you describe it? My one-sentence description of this is a movie starring a monster, made by a monster, 
about Superman. Oof. Oof. Poignant. Seriously, seriously. Fuck Kevin Spacey. Fuck Brian Singer. They're both terrible people. Don't watch this movie. Listen to this pod. Listen, they're not the only two people involved in a movie. So to bury the film because of their involvement is a little tough because hundreds of people work on a movie. And a lot of people, I'm sure, are proud of their work on this movie. And some of them really should be. Some people, I don't think, are particularly great in their roles in this film. But I think Brandon Rouse should have gotten more opportunities to play Superman. We'll talk about that more in a second. But as Chumzilla brought up, Singer was like almost slavish in his devotion to Donner's films. Is that a good or a bad thing in your eyes? Because obviously we all love Richard Donner's first two movies. Now, granted, he's not technically the director of the second movie credited. It's his movie. And when I say devotion, right, it's not an exaggeration. The the opening credit, it's done with the exact same sort of stylized graphic. Uh, Brando as Jarrell, to the point where they didn't just reuse lines they shot for Superman 1. They took lines he'd recorded but had no video for and re-digitized his face. So he would speak them. That CGI face in the crystal, they had to recreate his face and have it say those lines because they weren't, they had, didn't have those on film. They just had them recorded. And the movie, it's not technically a sequel, but it references things that happened really in Superman 2 and Superman what do you mean? Is that, Yeah, it's, it's absolutely a sequel. It's not. It's 25 years later, so it's not. It's a, re, it's a redone movie that claims to be a sequel. And you, to me, you can't have your feet in both of those waters. You choose one or the other. You're either rebooting it or you're making a sequel. I'll have to disagree there, uh, Mr. Wizard, because I feel like that movie was definitely meant to be a direct sequel. And that's probably what holds it back. Because like you said, there was a slavish devotion to the Donner films because this was meant to be a direct extension of that universe, even though it was 25 years later. I think they, they rehashed a lot of stuff we didn't need to see again. But I will say, I did enjoy some of the callbacks. I did enjoy Brandon Roth's uh, performance that was definitely trying to give a Christopher Reeve vibe. Uh, I enjoyed that Kevin Spacey tried to do his best light Gene Hackman impersonation. Like that, that Lex Luthor was on the same level in terms of his character and, and, and some of the mannerisms as you got with, uh, with Hackman, um, which was, was neat, but it didn't, the problem was, okay, I got the references, but it didn't take it anywhere. It didn't, it didn't expand upon it. It just kind of carried it through. And I agree with that completely. That really, for me, is where this movie suffers. It was very much a, let's do that again, but it didn't take it anywhere interesting. They, it, this movie takes some risks, and I don't want to. I don't want to take anything away from some of the the more lore expansive stuff that it does, which in two thousand six wasn't an option, right? I mean, I, I don't want to spoil too much before we get into the plot, but there's definitely a super sun that wasn't a thing until like two thousand and twelve, right? So this is six years in advance of what might happen for Superman. But it just, it doesn't go anywhere with it that matters. It it, it feels like it wants to retread the Donner films to the point where 
I'm just retreading the Donner films. I'm not breaking any new ground. And when it gives reference to the new ground, we're basically most of the way through Act 3. And I'm like, oh, well, that's a really neat thing. I wish they'd explore that. But uh, the movie's over now. Yeah. And, you know, it is a sequel. I mean, there's no getting around that. It's a sequel because this is a universe that has Superman already established, right? Yeah. So, hey. In the, we don't see him in the suit for 30 minutes into the movie. Okay, yeah. for a sequel, that's a long time not to get to the money shot, which is, okay, it's been 20-something years. We're waiting for Superman to get back. It's a world that he already exists in, and we're 30 minutes into a two-hour movie, and we haven't seen the cape yet. That's a pacing issue, in my opinion. Show me the cape. Yeah. Come on, like I I, I want to see I want to see the red undies. The movie is paced uh, a little poorly. It feels long. It is long, uh, even by today's standards. It's two and a half hour movie, so it it's sort of a wandering, thoughtful film about what this guy's going through, and he's alone in the world. The whole thing is he he comes to discover he's not alone in the world. But my issue with if you're gonna be so reverent to those movies. And as you say, it's a sequel, but to me, the thing it fails at in being a sequel is a lot of the characters don't feel the same at all. You've said it in the modern day as, you know, Superman 2 came out in 1981. If he's gone for five years, this movie should have been set in the 80s. Because Routh is doing a Reeve impression for the most part. Frank Langella feels nothing like Jackie Cooper. Kate Bosworth feels nothing like Margot Kidder. And Spacey is a lot less fun than Gene Hackman. I love that Frank Langella, fucking Skeletor, is very white. Yeah. I, I, I love that so much. And he drops the title at 4120 in the movie, which I think is great. Yeah. Skeletor gets the title drop. These actors are good in their roles, but they don't feel like those actors. So maybe Jimmy, yeah, I think Jimmy feels pretty similar. He's an old shucks kind of guy, and he's a goofball. But the other actors do not feel the same. Kate Bosworth has none of the spirit and spunk of Margot Kidder at all. Listen, don't you sleep on Sam Huntington. I, I was a little surprised uh, when I saw this. I thought, and I hate to say it, I don't want really to give Kevin Spacey too much credit because he's a creep. But I really enjoyed his Lex Luthor. I mean, he was not likable. like, and, and that was the point. I think he did a really good job of kind of taking... The, the schmucky attitude that Hackman had in those first couple... What, he, was in a, he was in what? One, two, and four? Four. Yeah, he wasn't in three. Um, I think... But regardless, I think he did a really good job of being a, a not likable villain. And he played it just hammy enough. Because, face it, Lex's plot in this movie was super comic booky. It's the same plot as Superman 1. Yeah, and it was pretty convoluted. But I think he played it great. I think he's one of the bright parts of the movie. He, and of course, he gets a lot of screen time and a lot of dialogue. There's not a lot of dialogue in this movie for Superman. At all, yeah. Like, Ralph does not get a lot of lines. So to that end, let's break down the plot very quickly just to give you all listeners a sense of what the fuck goes on on this film. It's set in a time where Superman has been gone for five years. He's been gone for five years in search of Krypton, doesn't find it, crash lands on the farm. 
comes back to find that Lois Lane has moved on, has a son by theoretically another person, and in his absence, Lex Luthor has been able to be released from prison. Lex Luthor has since seduced an older lady, got enough money to act out his next newest scheme, which is to steal all the crystals from the Fortress of Solitude, create a landmass all its own off the, the East Coast, which he will then, as in Superman 1, sell as the real estate mogul. All of this is interspersed with, you know, he has to get a piece of kryptonite, which puts his mall, not Mrs. Tessmacher, I think she, her name is Kitty, yeah. in moral peril yeah, at one point. And, you know, in Superman does this great thing where he saves a plane and he does a ton of, like, really Superman stuff. I, I really think that this movie has some of the best Superman power stuff that you'll see around. It, it doesn't just use the super strength or the invulnerability, but you see all bits of it. You see him use his x-ray vision to assess a person's injury. You see him uh, do all kinds of it. He literally gets shot in the eyeball with a gun, and you see the bullet taps on his eye and bounce off. You're kind of glossing over the fact that he also uses his x-ray vision to stalk Lois. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not ignoring that. I'm not ignoring that. Not only does he check her for injuries, much like he checked her lungs for lung cancer uh, in the Donner films, but he also uses it to, to spy on her and Cyclops in their, uh, you know, in their domestic marital home, premarital home. That's a sort of weird scene. And I read a book about Superman a few years back, and the writer broke down basically the failings of the majority of the Superman movies, and he literally pointed out like Superman is not about sneaking around and spying on his ex-girlfriend in like a really creepy yeah, way weird. like superman has real things to do and real responsibilities like maybe he's upset that lois has moved on but his mind is occupied at all times with all the shit he has to do elsewhere he's not just going to go sit outside her window as she talks to her husband <laughs> Yeah, Down. he hears everything. And that, yeah, this movie establishes that he hears everything. But you make a very good point, Captain Cash. There are some great power scenes in this movie. That plane scene where he lands it in the baseball uh, part—that's awesome. And like that's—I mean—that just—it feels good. That's catharsis, you know. Like it's pretty awesome. And there's a fair amount of tension in that. You know, you're not sure how you know he's going to do it in the end, but they do a good job of building up the tension and make it kind of dramatic. Uh, the Gatling gun scene and the bullet to the eye you mentioned, that's great. Um, he even gets a little bit of heat vision, a little bit of his cold breath in there. But I still feel like this movie lacks big action. Those are all cool scenes, but they just don't really nail the action. And that's, again, that's why I think it's kind of boring. I'd like to give a shout out to the boys and Tony Starr for the amazing job that they do with the reversal of this scene with evil Superman and the plane. The, the plane sequence is really great, and one of the big problems with it is it comes very early. I think it's 30 minutes into a two-and-a-half-hour film. And then you've got him say, rescuing Kitty as Lex steals the kryptonite. Uh, but the end, there is no action in the end except for his, his Metropolis sweeping save scenario, which I love. It's one of my favorite Superman scenes ever, where he catches the Daily Planet. He lasers the falling glass he 
blows out the gas as it's about to explode. It's and he and it all kicks off with the guy falling out of the crane, and he out of nowhere sweeps through the sky and, and saves this guy, and then just continues yeah. through the streets saving people. It's just a great Superman sequence, and one we really haven't gotten since, which is kind of depressing, because uh, I really love that scene. That scene sold me on this movie the first time I saw it. Now, to to your point, and where that falls in the plot, that's like the third act big decision moment where you've seen Lex Luthor's plan is to basically take the technology he's gotten from the Fortress of Solitude to do that same, we're going to create some new land. Whereas before he was, you know, using nuclear weapons to break the fault line of California. Here he's using the same technology that Superman used to create the Fortress of Solitude, but instead creating a new island that he will ostensibly own. But in doing so, he sets off this chain of events where, you know, it, it wipes out a lot of major important infrastructure pieces to Metropolis. And personally, my favorite part of this is where he's forced to make the decision. Because at this point, he knows that Lois is on the boat with Luthor and Lois's son. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, Lois's paramour, uh, Richard White, uh, played by James Morrison, is also on the boat with him and in danger. But you see this, this play in his mind, and it's a really great shot where he's like, okay, I can go save Lois, or I can go save all these people who are about to die if I don't do it. And he chooses to save the vast majority of the people before he goes and does the thing that is what he wants to do. And that, for me, is really the strongest Superman move in this entire film, is where he you can see the conscious choice of, I have a responsibility to save all of these people. I'm going to do that right now. And it's also a huge reflection of the character as a whole. He is always in that scenario. There's always something happening, and he always has to make a choice, and he can't be everywhere at once. No matter how many powers he has, a choice has to be made. I mean, we see this in a lot of movies. It's in Spider-Man 1, right? Suffer the little children or save the woman you love. Like The hero is often faced with a difficult choice, but Superman faces that hourly every 10 minutes. And I think that's what it does very well, is that it lets you know that Superman is constantly making that decision for himself, and he chooses to try to save the most people. And, I, and to your point, that's where they do an excellent job of highlighting the heat vision, the cold breath, the him just saving random people, the him grabbing the, the Daily Planet logo and everything it really it, that's a stellar scene that in a movie where it just gets kind of lost because there's too much other stuff going on that's a great point captain cash because that is an awesome scene and all the rescue stuff is great and it, it's definitive superman action you know he's doing the right thing he's saving people that's just as much as his, of his mythos as punching people out is saving mm. people yeah. And the problem is, it's not really a big part of the climax. It happens before the climax, and it kind of gets lost. You don't really get the payoff. Yeah. Um, and I will say, they do kind of overuse the Superman catching things motif a little bit. It, it just it just seems a little repetitive, but it's still, it's cool. You get the Daily Planet thing. You get that Atlas, you know, with the world on his shoulders kind of vibe. It's, it's pretty yeah. good. 
But the broader point here about the, the moral dilemma facing a character like Superman, and I'll add that you get a character like Captain America as well, who's supposed to be the moral compass of the group, you know, the Boy Scout, you know, trope, right? Is That's really the only way. And I'll, I'll give Stan Lee some credit, you know, for, for putting this kind of challenge to Spider-Man as well, who's not nearly as powerful of a character as Superman. But the only real way to challenge somebody like Superman who can fly around the world, who has heat vision and the cold breath and the super speed and all that, you have to make him choose. It's not like he can't save these people. It's like I can't be in two places at once. I have to do one thing or the other. I have to make a choice. You have to challenge him mentally. You have to make it you have to make him, you know, face a moral dilemma. Because a physical challenge or something like that, that's not going to slow down Superman. The only thing that can challenge him is his own decision making, force him to make a choice. And that's, that's you know, that's, that's again, that's the interesting way to challenge a character like that. You know, when Captain Cash is talking about the fault lines versus this new thing, like, that's how redundant not only some of the things that happen in the movie feel like at one point he gets stabbed with the kryptonite, they save him, he's like, I got to go back. Then he get then he's hurt again, or like he saves Kate Bosworth, Lois Lane, and and Richard and and the kid, and they're like we got to go back, but the whole plot it just swaps the West Coast for the East Coast. You create another landmass nobody would have any interest in. Why would anybody want to live on that giant rock? Anybody. So to that point, Luther is a hundred percent successful. He shoots the. The crystal that, with the same technology that Superman used to create the Fortress of Solitude, it starts to create this weird crystalline landmass, which looks like some sort of blasted, blighted, weird geometric whatever, which is now infused with kryptonite. So that Superman shows up there, he realizes, ah, there's kryptonite. Luther's way too late. He realizes that way too late. Yeah, Luther's henchmen beat the crap out of him, and then. Little, Kevin Spacey. A little passion of the Christy. Yeah. Things, a little passion of the Christy. The spear in the side, the whole beating, beating him up thing. I think yeah. Mel Gibson was, was standing on the sidelines like, yeah, yeah, that's it. That's it. That's yeah, it. You, want, you want that. Yeah, 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 good. Yeah, him and Kevin Spacey seem like friends. Ugh, God, he's awful. <laughs> but he, anyway, he gets shivved with the kryptonite shiv, gets thrown into the ocean. Lois Lane convinces Richard White, who is clearly the hero of this film, to turn the plane around. They get Superman. You mean she Steve rem- Trevor? Yeah, either or. She removes the the kryptonite shiv. He now Most of it, not all of it. Yes, not all of it. Superman then is better, sort of uses his heat vision to fly under this the ocean, drill down into the earth, lift the whole of this weird kryptonite. Fortress of Solitude Island and throw it into the sun despite the fact it is infused with kryptonite and should be killing him. He throws it into the sun. His exposure to the kryptonite hurts him enough that he has to go to the hospital where he is recovering. Where Lois... Yeah. Where Lois lets him know that the four-year-old is actually his biological son which was also revealed with a all oh, he threw a piano at a henchman who may or may not have been the Joker's henchman, and I kind of glossed over that, but you don't care and I don't care either. That's how long this movie is. Uh, and then he gets better. 
Uh, and then he, he says some weird Jesus allegory stuff to his son who is in a bed. The end. Uh, n- no, that's literally from Jarrell. I, I know it is. Yeah, he repeats his father's words. Yeah. Again, and it's still very much a Jesus allegory. So wait, um, the, the henchman that gets killed with the piano from Soups Jr., yeah, uh, I believe he's actually name dropped earlier in the movie as some sort of serial killer. They talk about some creepy friends. No, they talk about a clown murderer at the Daily Planet. They talk about a, some kind of serial Birthday killer about party clown. massacre. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. I believe it has to do with the, the that clown tattoo. I think that's why Lois because Lois recognizes it. Yeah. I mean, am I crazy uh... for thinking there's a reason when she saw that tattoo, it meant something to her? I feel like. Like they tried to reference that earlier. I, I I don't know if it's a Joker thing, but I thought it was reference to some kind of serial killer from earlier in the movie. So to clear it up, that there is a point in the film where one of Luther's henchmen starts to play the piano with Super Child Junior, and he very meaningfully looks at Lois and takes off his beanie to reveal the fact that he has a an evil clown face tattooed on the back of his bald head. And we are meant to take this as, oh, he is truly an evil person. Not to be trusted with children. <laughs> Prison's a creepy place, Kitty. To survive, you have to make creepy friends. So this movie's unfortunate legacy um, is really that it further buried the character for another seven years after waiting 19. Now Batman, on the other hand, flourished. We get the Dark Knight trilogy, one of the most successful comic book trilogies of all time. It should be noted that Begins made less money than this did. 391 to 375. I would still like to see the universe where DC got its head out of its ass enough to go, oh shit, this movie and Batman Begins, and especially The Dark Knight, which came out literally two years after this, turned into the DC universe which gave us Justice League with fucking Christian Bale and everything else. Uh, it had nothing to do with what DC wanted. Nolan said no. That was it. And also Heath Ledger didn't die. Especially yeah. Heath Ledger didn't die. Yeah. So that's a whole other pod right there. What happens if Heath Ledger doesn't die? That's, that's a world that I would like to see. Is it too late to ask that we murder Brian Singer and Kevin Spacey to get Heath Ledger back? What's the deal? Where, who do we strike that deal I, I, with? I think it'd be a fair trade. I think I would trade Kevin Spacey for Heath Ledger. I mean, I think you got to call Baba Yaga. So I, I will say this: I'm not a big fan of this movie, Mr. Wizard, but I also think it's unfair that this was a one-off because I think this is a better foundation than what we got with Man of Steel. Oh, a hard agree. That's what I was going to ask. Right? This movie was financially it costs a little bit more than Begins, but it made more than Begins. It got just as decent reviews, but it never got its sequel. Now, you said you didn't like the movie, but you would have liked to have seen a sequel. How about you, Captain Cash? I remember seeing this movie when I lived abroad, and I remember walking out of that film and going, I'd like this movie a lot better if it was Spider-Man. But in watching it again after, God, what, 13 years? It, it's not that bad. It, it's overly long. It's definitely overly long. It's it's overly devoted to reminding us of stuff we already know. Like we get the running through the fields of Kansas scene. We get a lot of like reminders of like, look, remember kryptonite hurts him. And it's, it's unnecessary. 
but I feel like there was enough here that you could have built beyond that. I agree. Um, I think they were setting a nice table for what was to come. Not to mention, at the end of this film, there's kryptonite everywhere. That opens a lot of avenues for who gets their hands on that. What's the consequence of Luthor's idiotic decision to make the giant uninhabitable rock planet? And I will say this, in the two scenes, well, it's one scene, but in the two times he he leaps, he's this kid discovering himself, that was cooler looking than the entire jumping repertoire of John Carter. That shot, <laughs> that shot from the ground up where he's jumping and the sun is above him looks better than everything in John Carter. And this came out six years before that. I, lo- I love this movie. I know I've been a little critical of it. But I, a few years back, I wrote a, a blog about it on what was my personal website back then. I think I'm going to revive it for Revenge of the Fans, if they'll have it. And I, I wrote basically in the conclusion that this film is a dedication to the heart of the character. It's a tribute to those who came before and all the good they did in crafting his stories. On that note, it rings as true as any superhero film there has ever been. And I'll always appreciate it for that. Part of me will always regret that Singer and Routh, maybe not now Singer, but who is magnificent, didn't get to continue this vision. But at least there will always be this one. It's a movie that really understands there is more to a hero than just a brightly shaded costume or heaps of explosions and action. There's depth, weight, and a deep understanding that the heroism of a character isn't measured by the eruptions on the screen, but by the value of their existence on those that need them most. And I think that's what really resonated for me above all else is that Lois in particular because she's the human manifestation of this comes to resent him for leaving but mankind at large does not because when he comes back the magnitude of that how important it is that he's back just to do the little things that weren't getting done and they do they do kind of show this in these news clips and then he's here and then he's there and then He's all over the place. And this one night, he's gone across the globe making these little rescues, doing things as little as stopping a convenience store robbery. Like, he's there to, to protect the people that can't protect themselves. I love that about this movie. And it really, for me, uh, I hadn't read comic books in a long time. And I'd seen all the comic book movies that came out. I love Spider-Man. I love Spider-Man too. This movie brought my love for Superman back and has carried it since that day that I saw this. It, it reminded me so much of sitting down with my dad and watching Superman the movie on VHS. I just like It was such a nostalgia that couldn't be replicated by some other film. And I really, I really appreciate it for that. Hard agree there. I mean, this movie has heart to it that you don't get in the snack films. And I don't want to bash on Zack Snyder any more than I've already bashed on him before. But I was still content. He doesn't get Superman. And although this film's a little derivative of the Donner films, it's still quintessential Superman. He's still righteous. He's still saving people and making the moral choices that fit with the character. And, yeah, it, it's it's satisfying in that regard. I mean, it's a true Superman movie. I just don't think it did a good job of selling itself. Like you said... It, it didn't make a ton of money, you know, but it wasn't terrible, but it didn't do enough to really propel the character and carry the franchise. And that's the biggest knock here. It just didn't have enough sizzle. It was coming out in a superhero landscape where everything was trying to one-up 
like X-Men started, pretty subtle movie, couple of action scenes. Then all of a sudden Spider-Man comes out. Spider-Man blows X-Men out of the water. X2 blows X-Men out of the water. Everything is one-upping each other. And this movie is a very thoughtful, soulful, slow film. It's a slow burn. Let the record show this movie is why X3 sucked. That's true. Because Singer, oh, it hurts to say this, because the first two X-Men movies are pretty passable. Uh, X2 is awesome. Yeah, and Singer is a goddamn monster. But Singer left this, or sorry, Singer left X3 to pursue this. Broke his contract. Yeah, and then we got Brett fucking Ratner producing X3, which is not a good movie, but could have been better. And I, it's, it's a weird place to be in to be like, I wish that hadn't happened, especially with what we know now. So, yeah. And, and honestly, this is one of those things where it's, it's interesting to hear the backstory of how it took literally 19 years to get from... Superman 4, what a, the quest for peace. I honestly never saw that shit to here. little side note. You mentioned Ratner, X3. Ratner was actually in competition to direct X1 with Singer. When Singer left, not only did it kind of ruin the plan for X3, it also is the reason Cyclops is murdered basically off screen and with little to no remorse because he said if he's leaving I'm leaving and he went to go be in Superman. Second side note you know we're living in a golden age of, of superhero content when it was just announced that Brandon Routh is coming back as Superman for the CW's Crisis on Infinite Earths and I could have never imagined that as being something that was even a remote possibility and I just think that's so tremendously cool. And I'm very excited for it. Also, we're getting the best Batman back as old Batman. Yes, that's right. Kevin Conroy. So we're going to take a quick break. And then we're going to talk about all the start stops, the shit that went wrong, the movies that literally started pre-production, the script after script after script on this 19-year death march to get Superman back to the big screen. And we are back on Hops and Box Office Flops. This is our Superman Returns episode. And I'm going to kick it over to Chumpzilla. And he's going to give you a little background on some of the ridiculousness that not only cost this movie money in the long run, but cost people money for things that never came out. And never saw the light of day really until recently when John Schnepp's brilliant documentary, The Death of Superman Lives, came out, which I know I've recommended on this pod. Uh, and I would recommend it again. Rest in power, Snappy. Yep, indeed. We miss you, brother. So go ahead, Chumpzilla. I was just saying, you mentioned earlier, this this movie carried some dead money with it from the pre-production work done on the films that never came to be. And one of the biggest expenditures was, I believe, $10 million that was contracted to Tim Burton for his work on Superman Lives, uh, the, the, the failed Nicolas Cage uh, vehicle. Because, yeah, he was going to get paid his money whether that movie came out or not, which it didn't. But still, that's $10 million the studio had to carry forward. I mean, and you mentioned there were several other uh, scripts before that even came to be. So here's my thing. Do you think the lesson that WB learned from that whole fiasco was, 
okay, screw it. Let's just pay Christopher Nolan whatever he needs paid to let him produce Man of Steel. Coming off of The Dark Knight Rises, he had pretty much carte blanche. And they said, we want to do Superman. They said, all right, go ahead. So I know Zach gets a lot of uh, uh, the blame for that, but the movie's co-written by Christopher Nolan's brother. He produced it. There are decisions Mm -hmm. made in that movie that he could have assessed and sat back and said, no, this doesn't work for this character. And he had that kind of pull. They would have taken things out or they would have altered the scene. Because to me, I I like Man of Steel, but the the ending is where it really falters because it's just destruction porn. And he, there's many smart people in the room that could have said, hey, listen, he needs to say, let's take the fight elsewhere or he needs to start saving people. I I think, too, you can't really blame Nolan uh, too much for this because the producer I would put most of the blame on for the mess that is the Superman franchise at this point is still John Peters. Yes. (laughs) Because... Yeah, his fingerprints are all all over. And let's just be clear here. John Peters, many films to his credit as a producer, including Batman with Tim Burton. But he's effectively uh, Barbara Streisand's hairdresser. So, you know, this this movie has a really convoluted history. Please, Mr. Wizard, expand on this. So when they were trying to bring Superman back to the big screen, Kevin Smith wrote the first couple of drafts for this and when you watch the documentary The Death of Superman Lives, he he's really hilarious in it because the experience of working with John Peters sounds like something you would have to live through to believe. And Tim Burton is not a fan of John Peters, and he makes that pretty clear as well. But uh, Superman Lives with Nicolas Cage was going to be based essentially on the death and return of Superman. When Kevin Smith turned his, in his original script, he met with John Peters. John Peters doesn't read. He sat on a couch and he said, read it to me. Kevin Smith reads him his script. He starts making comments. He's like, you know what? This movie really needs a giant spider. Wait, wait. Not a giant spider. A Thanagarian snare beast. Snare beast. Yeah. <laughs> Holy shit. Listen, Kevin Smith for throwing out Thanagarian. Hawk man. Fucking hawk people. Hawk people in general. Yeah. Hot girl, hot man, it doesn't matter. Way so, to go, Kevin Smith. So let, let's just be clear. I love this, and and uh, I'll, I'll throw out of here. You need to go watch. Kevin Smith did a, a, a talk about this before the documentary. It's on YouTube. It's just Kevin Smith, Superman Lives. Uh, look it up on YouTube. It's great. There were three things that Peters wanted in this movie. I don't want him flying. Wait, okay, Superman, you don't want him fly? Okay, fine, good, whatever. Two, I don't want him in the suit. What do you mean you don't want him in the suit? That's hokey. I don't want him in the suit. But that's kind of his thing. Yeah, but I don't want that. Okay, great. And in the third act, he has to find a he has to fight a giant spider. And now, to Peter's defense, he had this grandiose vision in his head that it was going to be like the scene in King Kong where the doors open and Kong's there. He wanted some doors to open and there'd be a giant spider for Superman to fight because, in case you didn't know. Spiders are the most vicious killers in the insect world. So, which is literally a quote from that asshole. Yeah. So Uh, so Kevin Kevin Smith is just like you know he's twenty six, twenty seven years old, fresh off of Mallrats, and he's just like a great film. I feel like technically Mallrats was a commercial failure, and if we get to do that on this show, 
God, I'm going to fucking kill it. I love that movie. Underrated, underrated movie, and I will say it's one of the few movies that the extended cut is actually worse than the theatrical cut. But I know, right? Weird. It's real weird. But the point being, you know, Kevin Smith just like, fuck it, I don't care. I get to write Superman. I'm going to stick it out. And I've read his script, and it was decent. And then his second draft, because he after he read it, as Mr. Wizard said, he had to go to to this guy's house while he laid down on the couch and did the director hands in the air and read them the script. He's like, okay, so Brainiac, just newsflash, Brainiac was in this script. Uh, you know, shows up to the Fortress of Solitude. Uh, nothing happens. He needs to fight somebody there. We need some action every eight to 10 pages. Something's got to happen. So can he fight some people or something? Doesn't Superman have some guards? And Kevin Smith says, well, uh, it's the Fortress of Solitude. It's, really kind of a, a singular thing. There's no other people there, no, no, no guards. And plus he's Superman. Why does Superman need guards? He's like, yeah, well, fine. Um, it's in, where's it at? Antarctica, right? Uh, what about polar bears? Polar bears would be good. And he's like, what do you mean? He's like, yeah, let's have him fight polar bears. Like he beats one up and the other one runs off, you know, because you know anything about polar bears? Because polar bears are the most vicious killers in the animal kingdom. Now, now listen, John yeah, Peters is a dickhead, but polar bears are the most vicious animals in the whole animal kingdom. They eat people. Yeah. They're they're they will fuck you up. Yeah, which leads Kevin Smith to say, I'm pretty sure this guy has way too much access, you know, to the Discovery Channel. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I'm sorry. But hey, that that series of stories are great. I like I think Mr. Wizard already said, go check out uh, Kevin Smith stuff and uh, you know, the death of Superman lives, you know what really happened. It's it's great stuff. John said. So, yeah, I, I don't want to go into everything because it really goes wild. But they got very deep into production of this movie. And when you watch the documentary, you get to see some of the test suits and, and the things they were going to do. And, uh, I mean, all of the storyboarding and the art, it's, it's all there. Like, they, got, they were just about ready to start rolling on this thing. And it gets canceled. Uh, and after that, with then you With Nicolas have, Cage. Yeah, with Nicolas Cage. Nick Cage in super, multiple Superman suits. It's insane. So then you had Superman Flyby, written by J.J. Abrams. Uh, when he wasn't picked to direct the project, they gave his script to Singer. Singer read the script. He didn't like that. They rewrote it. McGee was attached to direct this at one time. But McGee, uh, true story, does not like to fly. So when they told him they were going to be filming in Australia, he was like, well, I can't do that. Because he won't fly. So he's gone. Great. Yeah, very strange. Especially, I mean, this is like the biggest break of your career. No offense to Charlie's Angels, but this is Superman. Uh, so there was a lot of different people attached. I mean, there's even sequels planned for this that never panned out. Uh, I've even heard rumors, and I think editor-in-chief of RevengeOfTheFans.com, Mario F. Robles, on his podcast talked about how the original rumblings of a Batman versus Superman would have been Routh versus Bale. But when this movie didn't live up to expectations and Christopher Nolan essentially ran WB for, I mean, he does whatever the hell he wants. He said, no, I don't want to do any of that. This is going to be self-contained. This is its own thing. And that just all went away. And they said, okay, we'll just wait till you're done. So, you know, to your point, like you say, like, oh, they really should have made the DCU out of that. He never wanted any part of that. So that was not going to happen when he was steering the ship. Yeah. That's depressing. It's just, it's, I think the, the biggest takeaway for me on hearing all this is Superman is a timeless character. 
Now he's been around for 81 years. He has an incredibly diverse portfolio of stories that you could translate to the big screen. Why is it so hard to get this right? Why has nobody been able to do it when Richard Donner did an awesome job and I, that movie is very special to me. The producers of the original two Superman movies in three and four were not easy people to work with, which is why Richard Donner got fired. They were just as sort of nonsensical as John Peters in their demands. He yeah. found a way to do it. Like you have to make things like this work. I mean, Sam Raimi dealt with it at Sony, right? Like he made his movies work until he couldn't make them work because there was too much meddling. Like you can yeah. overcome that sort of stuff, but it just hasn't happened for Superman. He's sort of snake bit. It is strange because Superman is such an iconic character and he's had several iterations now in film. He's had basically three, not counting the old serial stuff. He's had three modern era film incantations and yet the only villains that we've gotten have been lex luthor zod and doomsday that's it and we've, we've got we've gotten zod twice we've gotten lex luthor effectively two and a half times um and Doomsday once they really haven't mined his backstory yet and i would I, again i'll draw the parallel to captain america you know, the Marvel equivalent of the, the big blue, the Boy Scout in blue, we had a much bigger repertoire of his villains. Uh, Bartok the villain. fucking Leaper. Yeah. yeah. Zemo, uh, the Red Skull, uh, Armin Zola. Zola, you know? yeah. Yeah, I mean, and, and then it just, again, they have not done a whole lot with the source material. Like you said, uh, Mr. Wizard, it's a rich history, and they really haven't done shit with it. So we'll leave it at that. I think that really sums that up nicely but i will say you forgot about everyone's favorite villain in a superhero movie nuclear man who actually yeah but is so he's de- not from the comic is i know is so devoid of personality that he's voiced by gene hackman which is probably his only redeeming quality what's his name mark pillow or something like that should have been somebody uh so we forgot to do this just before the break, so I guess we'll do it now, right? We always recommend... How many beers do you think you would need to uh, get through this film? Or if, if in the longer, more slow sections, uh, to enjoy it? Of course, responsibly. I'm going to say none for myself. You'll be too high on the thrill of sweet nostalgia to care about drinking beers. So I'm going to say, do you like Superman? And have you watched the Richard Donner films? Two, two, you'll, you'll feel like you're watching Christopher Reeve. You'll feel like you're watching Gene Hackman, and it's going to be great. Are you not a big, super big fan of those movies? Somewhere between four and six, just depending on how much you like Superman. It, it, again, it's not that this movie is bad. It's just this movie is long and is overly devoted to anticipating you love the Donner films. Yeah, I, this is a hard six beer movie for me because it is long and it never really pays off. I wanted to see Superman punch somebody's lights out and kick some butt, and it just does not happen in this movie. This movie's action is super PG. 
And I think that's the problem with the movie. The movie spends a lot of time showing you how incredibly strong Superman is to the point where, again, he literally gets shot in the eyeball and it bounces off as though it was nothing. Which so is you cool. know, yeah, it's, a, it's an awesome scene, but you know if he punches somebody, they're going to turn into a red mist, and that makes Superman less fun and more scary as shit. All right, so we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to do Who Played It Best. We did this on our Hellboy episode, and this will be all Superman-centric. So we are back on Hops and Box Office Flops, presented by RevengeOfTheFans.com. Our Superman Returns episode rolls right into who played it best. Of the important roles in the Superman universe of films, who played each of these seminal characters the best? So number five, we'll start with Jimmy Olsen. Was it Mark McClure, the McFly Jimmy, as he was in Back to the Future? Obviously from Superman the movie to Superman 4. Sam Huntington, who Captain Cash nearly fell over himself to discuss his love for. He of the Kiss Army, Jimmy, this film. Or Michael Cassidy, the shit. I think they just shot Jimmy in the face, Jimmy. <laughs> in BBS. So the clear loser for me, if I'm going to go first, the worst is Michael Cassidy because he's dead in less than a minute. And I'm going to say I'm still with Mark McClure as my favorite Jimmy Olsen. Captain Cash? I really like Sam Huntington for basically all the other stuff that he does. So I'm going to give it to him. There's a little bit of me that feels like I should give it to Jack because he originated the character. So no uh, movies only Jack Larson is in this movie, by the way. Yeah. So how do you like, there was no Jimmy Olsen before that guy. So. Yeah, but we're doing the movies because if we didn't do the movies, then you're factoring in fring- things like frigging Lois and Clark. It's just too much crap. Dean Kane is selling get-rich-quick uh, real estate stuff on TV right now. He's a, he's a piece of garbage, and he's weak, and I beat him in arm wrestling. And there's there's evidence of that. There's photographic proof of um, you arm wrestling Dean Kane. So I'm just going to say I enjoyed Sam Huntington. But I was confused because when I saw the credits and I saw Sam Huntington, I thought he was going to be the dude from uh, Terminator Salvation. Nick Stoltz. Oh. Worthington. Sam, Sam Worthington. Worthington. Yeah. So I was, I was, I'm not going to lie. I was all like, oh, those are different people. Okay. Good to know. Here's what I'm going to tell you. Sam Huntington is worth at least sixths of a Sam Worthington. Yeah. Fair enough. I, I, that's a good conversion to know. So now I know the, the Sam Huntington slash Worthington conversion ratio. One to six. Okay. Moving on. Not on box efforts to turn. Just as people. The next Fair one enough. up, Perry White. Was it Jackie Cooper? The quintessential newspaperman Perry. Obviously Superman the movie to Superman 4. Frank Langella, the fairly uninspired Perry. Or Larry Fishburne. The apples don't cost a nickel. Woke Perry, BVS, and Man of Steel. My ranking of the three, I'm going to go Jackie Cooper. And I will say, the the original Donner films are not going to win all of these for me. So it may seem like it's trending that way, but they're not. Now, I'm going to Woke Perry, Larry Fishburne, and then to Frank Langella. I think he had the least to do. And he was fine. He's good in the role, but... I, and I'm going to go ahead and 
phrase it as that. I don't think any of these actors did a poor job in the role, except for the guy who got shot in the face. But he's my least favorite of the big screen Perry Whites. Here's what I'm going to tell you wrong. Fucking Skeletor. Nothing beats Skeletor. Skeletor wins 100% of the time. I find your lack of a face disturbing. Langella was good, but I give the credit to Larry. Larry was great. I enjoyed it. I think of all the Perry Whites, Larry Fishburne nails it. Crime wave in Gotham. In other words, water wet. He's great as Perry. Wouldn't he want that covered, though? A salacious crime thing involving a masked vigil? Listen, Skeletor. Skeletor. The end. So, quick fact. uh, Hugh Laurie from House was originally cast to play Perry had to drop out because of conflicts with the show House. That may have been interesting. Wow. I love Franklin Jella, but uh, I, I like Hugh Laurie a lot as well. He's been really good in some stuff. Uh, the Night Manager. Oh, man. A nickel fell out of my pocket, and then I found a million fucking dollars in Franklin Jella. Oh, that's incredible. Listen, dude. I mean, I love the Masters of the Universe movie, too, but that's not Franklin Jella's best movie. So it's not like that's like the reason, oh, we should cast Frank Langella because he was unrecognizable in this movie where they took He-Man out of the fictional setting in which he exists and put him in like a crummy city. That's a different pod. Yeah, yeah we're, we're going to get to Masters of the Universe eventually and I'm going to defend Frank Langella to my death. His little friend Gwildor loves fried chicken. <laughs> Stop. Again, different podcast. Different podcast. All right. Now we're into the big characters. Lex Luthor. So Gene Hackman, the Otisburg Lex. Superman, the movie, two, four. Kevin Spacey, the My Plan is Pretty Idiotic as No One Would Want to Live on This Rock Lex. Or Jesse Eisenberg, the In Hindsight, having him channel the A-holes from Silicon Valley is suddenly quite poignant, Lex. Uh, Which is the one that didn't rape children? Eisenberg. Uh, Gene Hackman too. <laughs> what what happened with Gene Hackman? Uh, he's old. We don't know. That's before the internet. We can't be certain. Then I guess I gave it to Eisenberg. Seriously though, I, that that seems unfair to no. Gene Hackman. No, I, sorry. Uh, my three, Gene Hackman's my favorite. Eisenberg is my second favorite. I actually really like his Lex. I thought it was different. I thought it was neat. I thought he did a really good job. I loved all his wordplay. A great script goes a long way, and he had some really tremendous lines in that movie. And this Lex, I like, but uh, just not as much as the other two. So, we'll go to you, Chumpsilla. Okay. Don't, 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 don't defend Kevin Spacey, whatever. I'm not going to defend him. I just enjoyed his performance. Don't even do that. Trust me. In in the, uh, I think it was in the Natural uh, History Museum heist scene. Does he not wear a Jesse Eisenberg wig? Oh, yeah. It's super Eisenberg-y. I feel like that's where they got the inspiration for the long hair in uh, the Eisenberg version of the character. No, I really enjoyed Kevin Spacey chewing up the scenery in this movie as Lex Luthor. I thought he nailed it. He's a creep, but hey, at the time we didn't know it, so I'll give him a pass. I, I can't give him a pass. Uh, Gene Hackman and I, I, I can't stress this enough I hate Jesse Eisenberg I hated that character I hated every bit of him in BBS 
you might need counseling. I can't hate him at the same level as I hate Gavin Spacey. No, see, here's the thing, though. Um, as performance goes, I can divorce the character from the uh, you know possible sexual assault allegations and say that Kevin Spacey's performance was less grating than Eisenberg's because I could not stand that character in BVS. That was terrible. There's an argument to be made for divorcing the art from the artist, but in this case, I hate you, Kevin Spacey. I hope you die in a fire. Moving on. How, how funny is it that it was Family Guy that called Kevin Spacey out on, on his activities way before the rest of the population got wind of it, and when he goes to Harvey Weinstein, that it was Courtney Love back in like I think two thousand and five. It's on the internet. You can find it. They asked her, "Hey, you know, this is post her turn as being an actress, and you know, yeah. the rest of the U.S." And they're like, "Hey, you know, you know, what advice do you have any young actresses coming up here?" And she's like, "Well, if Harvey Weinstein invites you up to a, a private meeting in the Four Seasons, don't go." And that just kind of gets shrugged off. And it's like, oh, wait a minute. There's been signs all the way through. We just kind of ignored them. I will say this. Kevin Spacey was the only person ever considered for this role. Uh, and some of the weird stuff he did on set, he apparently drove around in a golf cart with a Superman dummy being dragged behind it on a noose, screaming into a bullhorn, Superman must die. So, weird guy. And an asshole. Now, Lois Lane. Who played Lois Lane best? Margot Kidder, rest in peace, the always intrepid Lois. Kate Bosworth, the I want a Pulitzer for being a resentful jerk Lois. Or Amy Adams, the investigative journalist on display Lois. I will rank them as such. Amy Adams, number one. I think she does an incredible job of portraying Lois as a real journalist, going into areas that are not typically safe to get the story, and then really doing research to find out what's behind something that's not adding up. Uh, she does a really great job of that, not only in Man of Steel, where she discovers who Superman is, but BVS, where that bullet becomes like the key to unraveling this whole mystery. And she, you know, she's going down, she's shaking down people in Washington, she's doing her job. And I, I love that about her. And She's also a fantastic actress. Then Margot Kidder, love Margot Kidder. Kate Bosworth was just kind of flat in this movie. I thought she was one of the weaker elements of the film. What about you two? Chopzilla? I'd go one, Margot Kidder, and then uh, two, Amy Adams, and then uh, Bosworth three, because they didn't give Bosworth much to do in the script. She definitely had an arc, and they tried to push it, and she was supposed to be like this suppressed female character that was like you know trying to push past it but it, it all came off really forced um and amy adams not the biggest fan but you know whatever it, it was serviceable but come on margot ketter she's the, she is lois lane she nailed it i i nothing has improved upon her performance in all these iterations of the film what her and what both ketter and adams have that i think bosworth lacks is they're not afraid to be brash and in your face. And Bosworth was just really, she just, yeah, she didn't have the material to do that. She's very one note. Yeah, I, I think they tried to play up the, the, the female empowerment deal with her, but it never landed, never stuck. Uh, I think the casual misogyny 
in Superman Returns is one of its biggest weaknesses. And you could argue that's carried forward from the Donner films, but both the way Lex talks down to Kitty and Perry talks down to Lois, it doesn't really play well in the early aughts uh, into the future. Captain Cash? I'm going to give it to Margot Kidder because she had the most to do. I feel like literally everybody else has kind of been an afterthought, which is frustrating because I, I feel like Amy Adams didn't do a bad job, no, nor did Kate Bosworth do a bad job, but neither of them were given enough to make me care. Amy Adams literally has her entire own subplot, which is a third of a three-hour movie in BVS. Like, her role in that movie is very important. She just gets there too late. Are we talking about the point where she throws away the spear, only to realize, oh, wait, I need the spear, only to go get the spear and then be injured and need saving because she couldn't get the spear? When she unravels the mystery of the bullet, she realizes he's being set up as this fall guy. He needs to get Superman out of the way to make him feel like he can't save these people that he's been trying to save. I understand you don't like the movie. You, you just can't ignore major plot points. And that's a, this is not all in the theatrical version, which is a problem with the theatrical version. But it is it does exist, and we have seen it now. She goes out of her way to do this for him because she loves him. And not only is she doing it for him, but it's for the greater good. And she's a real reporter. The movie starts with her. The entire plot is intertwined with her. How does he know how to get to Superman? Because Superman will always save Lois. So if you put Lois in peril, Superman will be there. Which is what this movie does better than BBS. Is it puts it puts Lois in peril. And Superman still chooses to save the most people over the people that matter most to him. That's not that's not the point here. Wrong because he saves them both. Yeah. Yeah, he saves them both, but there's a moment where you're like, oh, shit. Because then you're arguing that he doesn't save all of Metropolis in the other movie, which he does, too. But, but you know, that doesn't, that, doesn't, that doesn't clear the point here, that the fact that Superman is not always hamstrung by Lois. That, that's not the case. Yeah. He's able to act independently of her. I will say it is a weak point in this movie. They do manufacture a crisis to the point that Lois and Cyclops and Supes Jr. all get trapped to some extent that has to be resolved by Superman. There's no other way to get them out of there. There's a little forced, but it all works out in the end. But that's not Lois's fault. No, no, it's not. You can't fault her for being in that position. As I said, I like this movie, and I just happen to like those other movies too. I just think it's a ridiculous notion to pretend like she's not integral to both Man of Steel, Amy Adams, and BVS when she literally is a huge part of both of those movies. But to Captain Cash's point, though, she's not nearly as impactful. You don't feel the same way about you do Margot Kidder. No, I agree with that. Yeah, and Kate Bosworth kind of rides in those those uh, uh, coattails. It's still Margot Kidder. She's number one. That's fair. A couple quick facts about Lois Lane in this film. Amy Adams actually auditioned for the role in this movie. Lost out to Kate Bosworth because Spacey fought for the casting of Bosworth because they had appeared in Beyond the Sea together. And Noel Neal, the original Lois Lane, who appeared... First in 1948, and then again in Adam Man versus Superman, and then again in 
the George Reeves show, The Adventures of Superman with the Jimmy Ellison, Jack Larson. She uh, played Gertrude Vanderworth, the woman that Lex swindles out of all her money. She actually just died two years ago, the ripe age of 96, in Tucson, Arizona. Which is also the name of the yacht in the movie, the Gertrude. Yep. So, Noel Neal, the, the original Lois, is in this movie. Lastly, this is the big one. This is Superman, of course. I think we'll all have the same answer. But in breaking out all three, we might have some surprises, I suppose. So Christopher Reeve in Superman the movie, through the quest for peace. The Literally, this guy was everything to me as a child, Superman. Brandon Routh. Uh, the member varies version of Christopher Reeve, or Henry Cavill, his cra- <laughs> who was in Man of Steel, BVS, Justice League, and his crotch appeared in Shazam. Probably not his crotch. The Queen and Country Superman. I will say Reeve to Routh to Cavill. Cavill to me is the least essential of the people to play Superman on the big screen. I like him a lot. I hope he comes back. I really like Brandon Routh in this movie. I thought he was terrific. And Chris Reeve, of course, is the man. What do you got, Chumzilla? Where's the guy from uh, Smallville? I don't do TV shows. It's just, it's bringing in way too many <laughs> actors. And he'd also finish dead last for me, so. Well, okay, so that's a hot take for a later time. But uh, it's, it's real easy to jump on the Christopher Reeve bad, uh, bandwagon. But I hate to disagree with you, but I, I think that Ralph was an excellent choice for the character to bring it to the modern era. So as much as I like Christopher Reeve, I'm going to go with Ralph because I think he carried the torch. And he could have brought this franchise forward to multiple films. It just didn't happen. Uh, but hey, uh, Cavill's not terrible either. That guy's got the physique, he's got the chin, but I think Ralph nailed the hominess that you want out of Superman. Superman can't be a giant dick all the time, and that's what we got out of the Brandon Ralph. Well, we know that Captain Cash is now going to be like, oh, I've got to talk shit about Man of Steel and Batman versus Superman because they're the worst thing ever. They might have given me cancer, but I'm not sure. Go ahead. Just because you're right in my assessment that Cavill has been directed incredibly poorly and supplied with scripts that are not worthy of him, which kind of means he's not the best Superman. I've got to give it to Reeve, who completely understood it. And also, I feel like it's lost in the shuffle. Superman 1 and 2 are legitimately good films that try to convince you a man can fly. Ruth pays homage to that, probably to its detriment, but Cavill's got nothing to say. It's just, hey, hey, remember Superman? That, but angry. Uh, so, very, very easy. Reeves, Ruth, Cavill, done. Okay. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to do a quiz about the character Superman. Not about this movie, just about the character in general. So we'll be right back. So we are back on Hops and Box Office Flops, presented by Revenge of the Fans. This is really our last segment. It's the look up in the sky, Superman quiz of Kryptonian proportions. Now, I gotta tell you guys, there's a lot on the line here. The winner gets all of Kevin Spacey's wigs from the yacht. Yes! 
I've secured them. And uh, they're in good condition, not great, because they're obviously a little waterlogged, but they're in good condition. So, Kevin Spacey's wigs from the yacht, on the line. Five questions. Are you ready? There's a lot of lace front wigs. I don't think you realize how expensive those things are. Well, they weren't as expensive when they were found at the bottom of the ocean. (laughs) Number one, when Superman debuted... In 1938, his powers were significantly scaled down compared to today. During which age did readers truly begin to see the Man of Tomorrow blossom into the character we know today? Was it A, the Silver Age, B, the New 52, C, the Golden Age, or D, the Modern Age? I can repeat those if you need me to. Silver Age. Yeah, it's obscured based on the way you asked it, but it's the Silver Age because that's basically when they went... Oh, we'd like to make him fly because it's more expensive to have him land. The Golden Age. The Golden Age was during 1950s era. Uh, It was Ah. a very sci-fi obsessed period. He began to acquire his, like, the skill set began to dramatically increase. And he also became a lot more powerful. So now he could fly faster than the speed of light and break the sound barrier, where he used to basically just be stronger than a locomotive and faster than the speeding bullet. So they really amped up what he was capable of during the Golden Age. And some of the stuff we'll talk about later too, the Golden Age gets pretty ridiculous and then they tempered that stuff back down. Number two, Superman, as powerful as he is, does in fact have weaknesses, magic, mind control amongst them. The most prominent of those is kryptonite, which variation of the radioactive rock was known to be unpredictable, having the capability to temporarily remove his powers entirely or even turn him into an ant creature. Is it A, gold kryptonite, B, blue kryptonite, C, red kryptonite, D, jewel, or E, weight? Not like the e-cigarettes, like Superman's not rocking those. It's like jewel, like an actual jewel. Or E, weight, there's more than just green. Gold kryptonite. Yeah, gold kryptonite. You're both incorrect. You're both 0 for 2. So gold kryptonite will actually remove a kryptonian's powers forever. Blue kryptonite only affects bizarro creatures. So sometimes it actually can make a bizarro creature smarter or it can kill them. Red kryptonite is the answer. Jewel kryptonite amplifies the mental powers of phantom phantom zone criminals. And those were one of those things where like they really started to explode the sci-fi element of the series and then they tempered some of that stuff back. So you don't see that stuff as much now. Number three. This one's a tough one. Superman is traditionally romantically linked to Lois Lane. More recently, he has also been connected with Wonder Woman. Who else throughout his storied history has he also had a relationship with? Is it A, Lori Lamaris, B. Lila Lerrell, C. Lana Lang, D. Luma Lene, E. Those are all made up names, or F. All the answers except E. Lana Lang. Lana Lang. True, but it's actually all of them. Lori Lamaris was a mermaid from Atlantis who he met in college. She rode around a wheelchair and covered her tail, and they briefly dated. Wait, wait, hold on. Hold on. Superman went to college? Yes. So Lila Lerrell was a media star on Krypton 
She was essentially like an American idol, I suppose, before it was destroyed. And then uh, an alien copied her image over to fool Superman into dating her, basically manipulating him. Lana Lang, obviously, she's his Smallville crush and girlfriend. And she's appeared right. in different movies, Superman 3. She's in Man of Steel when when he's a kid. Yeah. Luma Lene, yeah. uh, in a former timeline, Lene was a celebrated superheroine on her home planet of Starl. Supergirl actually set her up on a date with Superman. So you guys are 0 for 3. You're not doing well. And I, they don't get they don't get easier. <laughs> Shit. And then my answer seems to be significantly less ridiculous. Wait, more ridiculous. Let's go. Number four. In 1978, Superman famously fought Muhammad Ali in a boxing match broadcast across the galaxies. The cover of this special issue, which is all collector's edition number C56, which I own and I love, features many a celebrity, both real and fictional, in the crowd. Can you name three of them? Muhammad Ali... He's, Superman. No, he's in the Frank Costas. In the first of uh, all, it's Bob Costas. No, 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 I can't. Who's Frank Costas? Um, I don't know. I don't care. This is a terrible quiz. Uh, is Larry King one of them? Let me look at my list. You have to look at the list. There's so many of them. It's insane. Like I've looked at it and I I can recognize quite a few, but I did not know it was. Richard Nixon. No, Nixon's not there because this is 1978. He was a disgrace by then. So, But Jimmy Carter's there. Gerald Ford was there. Betty Ford. Rosalind Carter. So they went together, apparently. All right. So I, I'm going to I'm gonna get, I'm gonna guess we got Sonny Bono, um, uh, Batman, Lex Luthor. You're looking at the cover. <laughs> uh, what? No. <laughs> you can't prove that. Cheater. Cheater. It's done. We couldn't do this. This was a terrible plan. Here's just a like a selection because boxing matches are known to have a lot of celebrities there, but this is a murderer's row. The Beatles were there, even with Yoko Ona and Linda McCartney. Kirk Allen, who played Superman in the Superman serials, 1948 to 1950. Lucille Ball, Sonny Bono, Johnny Carson, Cher, Dick Clark, William Conrad, Phyllis Diller, The Jackson Five, Jerry Garcia, James Garner, Who's after James Garner? Ron Palillo. Don't know who that is. Ron Howard. Jack Larson. Liberace. Tony Orlando. Donny Osmond. Marie Osmond. Christopher Reeve in glasses. Frank Sinatra. Raquel Welch. Wolfman Jack. Peter Falk. Columbo was at the fight. Andy Warhol. Woody Allen. John Wayne. Orson Welles. And, I mean, it's just ridiculous. It's a great comic. And you put Captain Cash to sleep. All right. Now, lastly, I think you guys have a shot at this one, so... Number five, in Superman Volume 2, number 75, The Death of Superman, the titular hero would battle Doomsday to the death. In his wake, four champions arose, and the reign of the Supermen began. Who were the Supermen? Uh, let's see here. You had Cyborg Superman. You had the Eradicator. You had Superboy. And uh, Steel. Correct. You got him. And Captain Cash is asleep. Woo! I win. Since Captain Cash is pretending like this quiz no longer matters, you have won the fine wigs, Chumpzilla. My first win. I'd like to point out this is my first win. Thank you, Mr. Wizard. I appreciate you putting this together and allowing me to, wait, wait. to be successful. Wait, double or nothing. Name steals name. John Henry Irons. Steel O'Neill. 
No, you asshole. Obviously, you know what it is. Double or nothing. Name the cyborg Superman's name. I don't think the wigs are worth this. You won. Fair and square. That's not part of the deal. I don't have to. <laughs> I win. Woo! <laughs> okay, wait, wait, wait. Quadruple or nothing. Name what the Eradicator's name actually is. What's the Eradicator actually? Wait, wait. So, so what you're trying to tell me is you don't realize no that the cyborg Superman is Hank Henshaw. And you don't realize that the Eradicator is actually a Kryptonian device that was built to mimic Superman. And he does a bad job of it. Well, he does a bad job of it. He does save him, though, so... All I know is that in the Kevin Smith version of the script, the Eradicator becomes a a, uh, exoskeleton suit that Superman wears to mimic mimic his powers and allows him to save people from a fire and finish the movie. He does wear a suit in the comic arc, too. Because that when he's resurrected, he's too weak. And he basically gets in this giant like mech suit, walks underneath the water to get back to Metropolis, and then Steel tries to beat the shit out of him because he thinks he's a bad guy. So, yeah. So, good times. So that is uh, the end of the quiz. And we'll wrap up, I think, with just some recommendations, if we have them. Yeah. All right, so uh, this is the, the end of the episode. We're just going to do some quick recommendations. And considering what we covered today, I think we should all recommend something Superman-related. So I'm going to go first. I'm going to recommend Superman, the unauthorized biography by Glenn Weldon. It's one of two uh, biographies of the character I've read. And it's this one's really good. And it's really comprehensive, and it goes through a lot of the history of the character. And if you're a fan of Superman, I think you'll really enjoy it. So that's Superman, the Unauthorized Biography by Glenn Weldon. I think it's available in all ebook as well as other formats. I would check it out. It came out, I think, four or five years ago. I really enjoy that book. What about you, Chumzilla? Well, I would just say that it's a tragedy that Superman has not gotten his fair shake in the modern cinematic universe. Like, he's a great character. He's the granddaddy of them all, as far as superheroes go. So go out there and check out, first, Kevin Smith's funny retelling of the Superman Lives story. It's in two parts on YouTube. Go find it. It's hilarious. Gives you some insights into how this story came to be and how we got to where we are today. And then go watch the uh, the movie. And it's free to download on the internet. You can find it. You know, the death of Superman lives, what really happened. It's great. It's entertaining. You'll enjoy it. And you'll see how hard it was to get a Superman movie brought to, you know, to the screen and see where things kind of went crazy. Before I kick it to Captain Cash, all I can say is we told a handful of stories from that documentary here. That's not even a fraction of the batshit stuff that happened in the making of this movie. It is hilarious. Kevin Smith is a great storyteller. It's worth watching that YouTube video just to hear his jokes. It's great. Captain Cash, lastly, you Superman recommendation. Go read Superman Red Sun by Mark Wade. The end. Well, actually, that's a pretty good recommendation to make because the animated Superman Red Sun is going into is going to come out 
uh, sooner than later. So, uh, you know, we just talked about Reign of the Supermen. They did a great uh, animated version of that. Check that out. They really did uh, the death of Superman again, uh, not that long ago. DC Animated has been cranking out really good movies for a long time. And those are two recent ones that uh, directly relate to not only the arc they were going for in Superman Lives, the movie you'll hear all about in that documentary, but stuff we brought up here today. So those are worth checking out as well. I had a great time with this one. I love this movie. I realize its limitations um, in rewatching it again for I don't know how many times I've seen it. Uh, it's tough. I mean, when it first came out, I think its place was a little more firm in 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 the in the larger overall universe of superhero movies, and I just don't know where it fits anymore with all that's come out. I think, like the movie itself, it's sort of lost, and it's wondering what its place in the world is. And that kind of sucks. And plus it never got the sequel. So it really is just out there. It's there. And if and if you didn't see it at the time. And you know it doesn't get a sequel. Like what's why would you watch it? Well to me you should watch it. Because I think it's a really soulful smart movie. About the weight of being Superman. And being alone. You know and your your entire existence is saving people. But you're alone. And when you go in search of that life that you had that was lost and you find it's just shattered. You know, he's a broken guy in a lot of ways in this movie and he's, he's really discovering himself. And f- having that connection in the sun cannot be underestimated. It's a really, I think there's a lot of beautiful moments in this movie. But it's just, there's no real, it's just out there. It's, it's the loss. It's not the Dark Knight trilogy, right? The Dark Knight trilogy, there's three of them. You know, like you watch the first one, you've got something to look forward to. You watch this and then you realize it was, it's another seven years of broken dreams for people that love Superman. And now we're living in it again because who knows what's going to happen. I think uh, Mr. Wizard has got to realize that a lot of people don't want that conflicted Superman story. I mean, there's a, a big part of this movie that he spends being a kind of creepy stalker hung up on Lois Lane. Those are not the stronger and- points. <laughs> You're not wrong, though. That humanizes the character. I, I get it. We get to see that, that Superman has, you know, Clark Kent slash Superman has, has and emotions, and he has, he has to deal with those. But, you know, creepy stalker Dr. Manhattan Superman is not that interesting to, to most folks. We, we don't want a Superman that's conflicted like that. We want a Superman that knows what to do and he's taking action and kicking ass. Especially considering that if this is truly a sequel to Superman 2, we've been through, I'm conflicted, I just want to be I'm a normal, a I want to be a normal yeah. person, Superman. And he doesn't really no, do that I, unless he does save people, but he, he's very, I mean, the loneliness is re, is like emanating off of him. I do enjoy... The, the the part in it's Superman too where he like he gets his powers taken away and he gets beaten up in the diner and he comes back to the diner and beats up the bully right yeah that's great to your point we didn't need that again in this film we've right. already seen that all right so that's where we're gonna we call move it past that I think next is Transformers 1986 is that correct if not we're gonna do it anyways the best goddamn animated movie ever maybe 
that's that's strong. It's it's, it's just very good. Transformers '86 in the interest of transparency, I've never seen it. I was a GI Joe guy, so that was my cartoon movie of the '80s, and uh, so this will be interesting for me. And uh, you guys will have to lend a lot of uh, factoids behind it because literally I've never seen it. I'm not. I was never into Transformers, so we're signing off. Up, up, and away. <laughs>